uh, we'll make it work. Maybe. I know we always do. Uh, debatable. Welcome back. It's episode 146 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast, coming to you as we always do from the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law, where we do not require vaccine passports, but John does continue to insist you whisper a password through the door like it's a speakeasy. <laughs> I'm your host, Troy Senek, former White House speechwriter, co-founder of Kite and Key, and guy who's been leafletting your car about my Zumba classes, and I am joined as always, by the Plato and Aristotle of the conservative legal movement, they are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush Administration. So, fellas, normally I'd open the show by asking you what you've been up to lately. In John's case, however, uh, I know the answer because he's been blabbing about it in the Wall Street Journal, which is, John, you kind of got fired by the president of the United States. Can you explain why the Biden administration is out for your head apart from the obvious reasons? I can do it. <laughs> Actually, I'd like to Richard has a first. long bill of yeah. particulars. <laughs> <laughs> no, I haven't been fired yet. I just haven't been appointed. So this is my Marbury moment because students and even non-students will know the facts of this are exactly the same as Marbury versus Madison, the case that created judicial review. So at the very end of the Trump administration, I got appointed to this advisory board that advises the education department and how it does research on education. It's filled with some uh, uh, very interesting, uh, you know, education scholars or people who are professors in higher education. So apparently Trump signed the commission uh, and then uh, left office on the way out. And so the commissions are somewhere in the Biden administration and they won't deliver them and acknowledge that we were ever appointed. This is exactly what happened to Marbury. Right? Remember in 1801, Marbury gets appointed by John Adams. He's actually confirmed by the Senate. John Adams signed his commission and sent it over to the Secretary of State, who was then John Marshall. And John Marshall never sent him the commission. And then the administration changed. And Marbury said, hey, where's my commission? So that's why he sued in Marbury versus Madison to get his commission. I don't have my commission yet either. But you do so not. that's what I've been doing. But may I make a, just an observation about that? Remember, the Secretary of State then became the ubiquitous James Madison, um, and Marshall went on the Supreme Court and managed to misread the statutes and make it appeal <laughs> as though the Supreme Court was claiming original jurisdiction over a case which it did not have in order to establish the principle of judicial review, which is what he was after. Uh, and I, I hope, John, when you sue for your particular commission, which will be promptly withdrawn, um, that you will go in district court, not repeating the mistake that was made by Mr. Marbury Lowe those many years ago. Yeah, um, the, the part we like is the advisory opinion part of Marbury, because the first half of the opinion is all about how you have a right to the commission. Once it's signed by the president, you are an officer of the United States. It's not that you have to wait for the physical paper to get in your hands. And then this boring stuff that everybody's still concerned about, like which is the right court and judicial review, that part's not as important to us. 
Well, it's actually interesting. It's a very close case. Uh, if you think about a uh, check as a standard negotiable instrument, when it's signed, it is not effective. It has to be delivered. And so the question is, why do you want to reverse the rules when you start getting to commission? Um, I actually think the much more dangerous situation is the one that Biden's engaged in now, where he starts to fire people from architectural commissions after they've been given four-year terms in a breach of standard practice. It may be legal, but socially it's an absolute disaster to do these kinds of things. And what it shows, along with your case, John, you're the small potatoes in this, to be sure, uh, but nonetheless quite edible. Uh, what? What, what, you're, an edible potato, John, you're an edible potato. Um, I am McDonald's French fry in yes. the great, in the great oh, super size of the federal government. Yeah, but what it shows is that Biden is prepared to break a lot of social norms. Um, and when people were to appointed to term appointments with respect to these commissions, the theory was that it would survive past the presidential term, so you get a constant mix. And when you start firing these people, you're just putting in your own people. And, and I will bet you not knowing the names of any of these individuals, everybody that Biden appointed is inferior to everybody that he replaced. Because that's the way these things start to work. And, you know, uh, this man who's restoring normalcy into public life now turns out to take a battering ram and to destroy all sorts of these commissions. I can't think of any case in which Trump did that sort of behavior. It was easy to call him a law was president, but I think it's more easy to document the fact that Biden seems to be that way. And John, I do hope that you sue for this stuff, uh, because even if you lose, you will make a point and will go down in history as one of the great gladiators for individual freedom. <laughs> that almost makes me not want to sue. Yeah, it's a little much. Suppose <laughs> I were to represent you, John, then, then you'd oh, really you have a reason not to oh, sue. Oh, God, Richard, it. would you take the case? We're going to the Supreme Court, baby. We're on the yeah, Express. Yeah, I know. I'll do it on a contingent <laughs> I'll cut off a third of the commission and give it to you. Yeah, we can, have, have you ever been appointed to a government commission? Me? Yeah. I, I've never been approached to be appointed to a government you know, commission. You're kidding. I've said this before. You should have been on Biden's Supreme Court commission. Maybe we can start a change.org <laughs> yeah, petition. Let me remind you Although of a we picture. we might accidentally get you hired as the new uh, host of Jeopardy. Yeah, let me remind you of a picture that he held up to Clarence Thomas back in 1991. <laughs> a picture yeah. of the book takings, which he said, roughly speaking, anyone who believes in anything that is found in anything said in this book is not fit for service on the United States Supreme Court. Um, and what the real tragedy of the situation was not that he said it, but that the Harvard press was so wooden that it didn't put this picture of that thing on there in an effort to uh, really promote the sales of the book. I mean, that was, uh, the, I, mean I, I basically, after I wrote the takings. No, book, no, after I, that, it was your book was, was surreptitiously Xeroxed and handed out exactly. behind <laughs> the scenes amongst students who were still brave enough to read it. Oh, and, and it has, like, in, like in East Germany. In East Germany, China, I mean, it has this sort of underground clandestine existence and so forth, which I'm very, very proud of. Uh, but several people told me after 1985, I said, Richard, I'm glad you have no aspirations for public office, because after this book has come out, it is quite clear that nobody in either party will want anything to do with you. And I think that's right. Whereas in 1984, before the book came out, I was actually one of four quote-unquote finalists um, at the Heritage Foundation of a potential seat. There were two guys you never heard of. One was named Scalia and one was named Bork. And the other two were a guy named Williams, I think he was 75 and a First Amendment guy, and a little old 40-year-old Richard Epstein. Uh, and that ended my public career, for which I am immensely grateful. Really? you were they, 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 Did they interview you? 
Uh, the Heritage Foundation did. It was by a man named Horowitz. And, and, clear, the uh, Heritage Foundation as sort of sort of a proxy, right? There, there yeah, I think so. I think so. And so, so Richard, did the, they ask you one question and then your answer was 40 minutes long? That was your big mistake, you know. You would be on the Supreme Court if it weren't for that. No, no, it wasn't. I don't think you know Michael. I, I don't think you know. I think his name is Michael Horowitz. Oh yeah, uh, this yeah. Turn, I know. This turned out he's a he was a strong judicial restraint guy. I was a stronger textual originalist, and there must have been ten people in the room, eight of whom never got a chance to speak. Um, and basically, when I left, the question I sympathize I asked myself, with those eight people. Uh, yes, yeah, so do I. I said, <laughs> now the question is not whether I'm going to get appointed to the Supreme Court. That's a foregone conclusion. No, the issue is whether or not I will get my my plane fare. Uh, and I did get that from the Heritage <laughs> Foundation. I continue to maintain wow. good relationships. But this was the time at which judicial restraint and textualism uh, were thought to be compatible, whereas the Epstein position at the time, which still remains so, give me broad text, I'll give you broad interpretations. Give me narrow text, I'll give you narrow interpretation. Originalism does not necessarily require mis- um, restraint. Fidelity to text may require the opposite. So on the takings clause, you have to have private property as a broad definition under the Commerce Clause, Commerce has to receive its ordinary definition, which is far narrow. The great tragedy of American law, described in one sentence, is we read commerce too broadly and property too narrowly, and it's exactly those kinds of mistakes that the next Biden appointment will perpetuate. Yeah, well, yeah, I see so why bad. the Heritage Foundation didn't move forward. <laughs> uh, John, I, man, John, you, you would have been there with them, guy. Look, I never you, would have made it through the gauntlet with their gauntlet either. Well, you, you may not have gotten the seat on the Supreme Court, but you got the next best thing, which is the ability to armchair quarterback these cases on a podcast. Uh, so, uh, I but think, wait, that took twenty years to get. <laughs> right, this well, is until two thousand and nine. To just twenty-five years later, <laughs> so you got to discount the benefits. <laughs> oh, well, I, I think <laughs> I think the uh, the obvious place to start today is with the fact that the court has agreed to take up an abortion case during the next session. This is a case out of Mississippi where they passed a law prohibiting most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. That is earlier than is allowed under Roe v. Wade, which they obviously knew, and there are a lot of red states where this kind of prodding is taking place because of the changes in the composition of the court. You had Justice Kennedy, who was very squishy on the abortion issue, replaced by Justice Kavanaugh. Then you have Justice Ginsburg, Justice Ginsburg replaced by Justice Barrett. Um, John, I'll start with you. You have a lot of progressives ringing alarm bells over this. Uh, are they right? How likely do you think it is that the court is actually going to put a meaningful dent in Roe? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think that the court's going to overturn Casey. Although I think there are probably four votes to do it. Uh, you know, Thomas has already said he wants to overrule Casey. Alito seems to want to overturn Casey. I'm going to bet that Amy Coney Barrett wants to overturn Casey. And uh, you know, based on what I've read of Neil Gorsuch's writings, I, I would think he would be a fourth vote to overturn Casey. They could also uphold the state law here and just modify Casey. And if they did that, I think they would get six votes because I think that uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh would easily go along with a holding that said something like states are allowed to regulate pre-viability abortions uh, without reaching the question of whether they should just um, toss out case altogether. They could even go so far as to say, uh, we're not really going to use viability as the line. 
that dictates when the state can and cannot regulate abortion. Um, so, for example, I, I think the courts already come close to this because, for example, uh, you may remember in the 2000s, there were these cases about a federal uh, law that prohibited what was called partial birth abortions. And even though that procedure is used in the third trimester uh, post-viability, I don't think the statute actually was limited to that. I think the statute just prohibited the use of partial birth abortion methods, no matter when the uh, no matter when during a pregnancy. If that's the case, then I could see the court just taking that holding and expanding it to saying, "Look, we're going to adopt a kind of flexible balancing test," which is what Chief Justice Roberts did in the last abortion case, and just apply it throughout the nine months of pregnancy and use and use that test to examine all abortion regulations and just maybe we'll get rid of the trimester framework, but we're not going to overturn Casey at this point either. I disagree, or at least I may disagree. Uh, let me mention the following fact first, which is there were three questions, one about standing that doesn't matter for this issue, but the other two questions were one, how does the undue burden framework in Casey apply to the case. And the other one was whether or not we have to get rid of the ability to put any restriction on the ways in which states limit abortions before 15 weeks, um, or rather after 15 weeks. Um, and they didn't take the second question having to do with undue burden. And if they were playing the game, at least for four, of trying to figure out how it is that you fine-tune Casey so as to allow a bit more discretion than otherwise, that would have been the obvious case to take. And then you would figure out just how much was due uh, to the undue expression. And as everybody knows, the word undo is one of the slipperiest words in the English language. Every time you see it, it could be given a narrow or a broad interpretation. And if they're not going to talk about that, then I don't think they're playing this game. So what I think is happening is I can count uh, up to nine, and, and this is the way I read it. I think that Thomas, I think Alito, uh, I think Barrett is actually on that side, and my guess is Gorsuch is as well. Uh, so that leaves in the middle Kavanaugh and Roberts. Roberts will not vote to overrule uh, this particular case, I think, because he in general is a man of sort of institutional um, continuity. If he wasn't prepared to do something with the state mandates and so forth, and King v. Burwell, he's not going to do anything here. Gorsuch is an absolute wild card when it comes to these kinds of issues. He's not been long enough on the court to have a very, some, shall we say, strong constitutional presence there. Uh, but on the other hand, if you look at the shocker, his Bostock opinion was uh, one of the more extraordinary deviations from accepted jurisprudence that one could ever see. And he's capable of going by either way. So I think, in effect, that the odds are pretty good, probably 30 or 40 percent, maybe even a bit higher, that Roe will be, in fact, trashed. And then the question is, uh, why? And here, I mean, my position has been pretty clear for uh, now close to 50 years. I wrote about this case in 1973 in the Supreme Court Review when I was a young man, even younger than John U is today. And uh, what I did is I took the position that the problem with, the, with, with this case was not substantive due process in the Lochner sense. The problem was that uh, the particular restrictions in question 
fell squarely within the health and safety provisions of the police power and should have been sustained, whether you call the thesis beginning a person now or earlier or later. And the odd thing, of course, about the Mississippi statute, which puts 15 weeks as a cutoff point, is that it doesn't comport with what I think is the only stronger position, which is that you need a discontinuous event to figure out when a person comes into being. And that conception is that particular point in the later stages, viability or anything less or more is going to be very, very difficult. So when I wrote about this in my Defining Ideas column, I said, look, I'm enough of an institutional coward that I would probably not change a decision uh, when I think several things are true. One, that the majority of the public supports Roe, even though they oppose abortion. And two, that many states like New York has already done would reinstate Roe by legislation uh, the moment this thing came down. Um, And so I don't know if I want to pay the cost of transitions. But on the other hand, if you ask me to give a principled juridical argument, which explains why it is after 48 years, Roe was right and when it had earlier been wrong, I can't do that. Uh, The decision was absolutely made up from start to finish. And so it's only sort of prescription that goes in the opposite direction. I'm inclined to accept those arguments more than other people. But I don't think there's anything that I could say if the five justices were determined to say, uh, this is an originalist question. This is not even within the pale. I don't think I could say anything that would demonstrate that they were wrong. Um, And I think that there'll be a lot of uh, difficulties after this, including, I think, a further push in order to have more court packing packing take place. So um, I don't know what to say about all this stuff. Um, I kind of wish they'd overrule it, but I fear that they may. John, let me ask you about some of the things that Richard raised in in that passage. And, And I asked this question in a spirit of genuine agnosticism. If you're the kind of person who is worried about the court being perceived as too political, as too central to controversies in American life, this case is interesting because if the court were to overturn Roe, it'd obviously be a huge firestorm, especially on the left. It would almost certainly increase the energy, as Richard says, behind expanding the court, and it would, in general, turn up the heat on an already polarized country. However, if the court pulls its punches, it probably creates a good-sized firestorm on the right, where they are going to say, for decades, we've tried to get an actual conservative majority. We finally did it. We got nothing. This is a God that failed. In addition to which, you would still live in a world in which this incredibly contentious issue can still really only be fought out at the court. So I guess my real question here is, is there any way for the court to not seem political on this issue? And is trying not to look political even a worthy goal for them here? Your question and all of these uh, political considerations on both sides of whether to overrule it or uphold it. God, it's like we're living in 1992 again. You know, it's like it's like the Terminator movies, Terminator 2 still in the movie, in movie theaters. Actually, what are movie theaters? We're not going to see another movie theater again. But this is exactly what people were arguing about when Casey was decided in 1992 about whether to overturn Roe that time. You might remember at that point, there was thought to be roughly a six to three conservative majority after 12 years of Reagan-Bush appointments. And I think the court made a terrible mistake in upholding Roe at that point and revealed itself to be utterly political. And let me, let me explain why. So if you start out with the proposition, or I think Richard and I both are, which is that Roe um, is bad constitutional law. You know, this is a, 
um, a view that people, uh, scholars uh, of all stripes have held, you know, John Hart Ely, the most, one of the great liberal constitutional law scholars of uh, the last half of the 20th century thought uh, Roe made no sense. And then you have Richard on the other end of the spectrum also saying made no sense. Um, so if you think Roe is wrong, then why uphold it? So you could say, ah, oh, well, there's stare decisis. And, but the stare decisis, the reasons you uh, don't overrule past opinions don't really seem to apply here. Um, you know, what are the reliance interests here um, in keeping uh, Roe versus Wade when the replacement, the, re- the regime that would come into effect after overruling Roe and Casey would be states would be free to regulate it on their own. And so you would most like, you would almost certainly have very liberal abortion rights in many parts of the country, including where most people in the country live, like California, New York, and Illinois. Um, and you would be able to travel to states to have an abortion if your home state didn't permit it. So if that's all true, and then you still uphold the case, why would you do it? And this is what the, and, you know, the opinion in Casey is very honest and open about this and and hence opened it to uh, uh, criticism and even mockery. The court that, if you remember in Casey, there was three justices all appointed by uh, Republican presidents, O'Connor, Kennedy, and Souter. And they said the reason they were upholding Roe was because of the attacks on Roe. And that to show that you overturned Roe, I'm sorry, to overturn Roe would show that you were in some way susceptible to those political attacks. Uh, now, the reason why that makes no sense is because they were also subject to attacks from the other side, not to overturn Roe. And so no matter which way you decide, Casey, or, to, or you know, which way you decide whether to uphold Casey, you are going to be said to responding to the political pressure of either the left or the right. So the easiest thing to do is to not think about any of that stuff at all and just call it down the middle of the road, you know, call, uh, do it the way Chief Justice Roberts said in his confirmation hearings, which he didn't do once he got on the court, which is just call the balls and strikes. If you think Roe was wrong, then vote to overrule it. If you think it was right, then uphold it. But to take start taking all those considerations into account, I think, leads you into this morass, which judges really are not good at figuring out and shouldn't figure out should, is, is beyond their the scope of their job anyway. Um, I disagree with John just a little bit, even though I'm on his side. Um, I do think that, you know, after 20 years, which was Casey or 19 years, and now it turns out to be close to 50, uh, there is this constant tension between uh, a stare decisive and prescription, long use and popular acceptance makes it a bit more difficult to do that. So, I mean, one of the decisions that we should overrule when we have U V Biden is, of course, Marbury v. Madison, because it doesn't... Oh, no! Oh, no, Madam Marbury's good precedent. <laughs> well, but that the point that you just used the word good precedent. It is indeed good precedent, right? But in UV Biden, somebody's going to say that the appropriate interpretation of Marbury was that the Supreme Court could not have Congress force jurisdiction upon it. It was not that it was a co-equal uh, superior branch that had judicial supremacy over the legislature and over the executive. Uh, I, we're not going back there. This is not at that particular stake, but it is an issue that one has to worry about. And it's an issue of jurisprudence, not of short-term politics. I agree with John. I mean, I think in many ways, by the way, if they overrule it, it's a disaster for other reasons, wholly apart from the question. Wait, about wait the, Richard, could I ask you, because I, I just right. I looked at your defining ideas column, and there yeah. you said that the court should 
uh, apply star decisis and not overrule. But I couldn't tell exactly why you had that view because you, you would concede that the normal principles of stare decisis don't really support keeping Roe in place. Uh, uh, John, uh, look, John, the reason I, I wrote this thing in this kind of weird fashion is I am actually genuinely torn. Um, if you start to take a textualist approach, even broadly conceived to involve all sorts of implications and so forth, this opinion is just made up. On the other hand, you've got 49 years of it being made up. And so uh, my basic view is what I said when I finally corrected the last sentence, I hope this morning, was that I don't have a single substantive argument that would tell a conservative majority that wanted to overrule Roe, uh, that you are wrong as a matter of original interpretation, broadly conceived under any particular theory. Um, on the other hand, if you take into account stereodecisive and prescription and so forth, it becomes a very much harder case. I regard the prescription question in American constitutional law as one that simply will not go away when you start getting to major issues. And people say, ah, oh, come on, it's not an issue. But the originalists, I think, often forget the number of very shaky foundations our constitutional order recognizes. Marbury is wronger cited. Martin again, Hunter's lessee. There is no appellate jurisdiction in the Supreme Court for state law judges who decide to strike down uh, a federal statute. That was the whole point of the system was to disperse that power so that state courts could have that power. It's an utterly disastrous decision uh, that they wanted to make. There is no federal jurisdiction in diversity over corporations. They're not citizens, particularly if all their shareholders turn out to be foreigners. And yet these cases have been around so long, we're never going to change them. Uh, the Electoral College, I mean, this whole formality bit is a straight fiction. Uh, uh, Justice Kagan may... But, wait, but Richard, what's the, what's the reliance interest for abortion? So uh, it's some not of the a things, question, all the cases you're discussing are... Well, and I agree with you, uh, for all these examples, are cases about the structure of government, about creating things like the federal... You could see like the whole system builds on the establishment of parts of the government. But with individual rights, that's not... The, how do you have a reliance interest in individual right being a certain way? Well, I mean, because the entire institutions in this country have grown up around this whole so-called abortion right, uh, the way clinics are done, the way people are taught, the way people interact one with another. And so, I mean, uh, it is not a reliance issue in the following sense. And John, I think you're right about this, is that, you know, you put notice out there that as of January 1st, 2022, um, it turns out that all abortions in the United States may be illegal by the states. Uh you allow all women who are pregnant trying to get abortions to finish it out under the current law, and all future pregnancies are governed by a different law. Uh, but th I think that reliance in this context has a broader social context of established institutions um, which have managed to weather many a storm, of which it turns out that the Rose Storm is one of the biggest and it's been weathered. So I am never sure which way I go on these issues, particularly in a case like Roe. It's not even close to Marbury or Martin against Hunter's Lake. See, is a shorter period of time. And as you said, it's not a structural decision. And it's also clear that the uh, it's not as though the original decisions were morally defective in some way. The uh, One of the courses I'd like to teach in American constitutional law is one of sort of uh, design catastrophes of the American Constitution. That is, all of the original decisions that they made, which turn out to be unsustainable or mistaken in some serious way. Uh, why is it that these collection of geniuses made those mistakes? Because they were venturing into the terra incognita. There was nothing remotely like a judicial power, nothing like enumerated powers, nothing like lower
in federal courts back in 1787. And these guys were flying blind. And when you fly blind, you crash from time to time. And then we make it up going down the road. We cheat. And sometimes we cheat when we ought not to cheat, like with commerce and with uh, property rights, as I mentioned. Those are the two great mistakes. And I'm much more willing, oddly enough, to try and cabin in the commerce power or to expand the notion of property rights than I am willing to take on Roe, because I don't think it has quite the emotional resonance, even though I know there'd be death threats on my life if there was this, this particular proposal had any chance of going through. So I'm, I'm genuinely torn by all of these situations, John, because I, I think that the reliance, interest, the prescription, the entitlements, and so forth actually do matter, and I think justices, to some extent, have to take them into account. That doesn't mean that they're decisive. It doesn't mean but they're not irrelevant. And so my my guess is that Justice Roberts is absolutely persuaded. I do not know about the other five, which way they feel. And until I can figure that out, I find it very hard to predict. So I'm guessing that of the, of the other five, it's probably a 30 to 40 percent chance that they would all go the other way. If I had to pick the one wayfaring fellow, I would think it would be Kavanaugh would be the one most likely to tip over to the other side. But it's certainly going to be a very closely watched case next term. And the tea leaves will be very, very hard. But very important to interpret. One, one, one last um, point I didn't get, I, I, I forgot, I left out was, it just seems such an anomaly because, uh, I mean, the, again, all we're talking about is whether to let states decide. You know, we're not saying you overturn Roe and abortion becomes illegal throughout the country. Um, and in fact, if I was just a voter in California, I would vote to keep Roe the way, I mean, keep abortion rights the way they are in California. But, you know, we allow... Um, states to decide all other matters of life and death. The death penalty is up to each state. Euthanasia is up to each state. All so, subject right. to constitutional overruns. Yeah. Right. But there's still, you know, the fabric of it is we should leave most of these up to the states. Anyway, well, that's I mean, my last. My, my observation is, of course, cruel and unusual punishment on the death penalty is another one of these constitutional albatrosses. Um, finding a prohibition on the death penalty. That is not expressly mentioned when death was the most usual punishment of all back in the uh, time that this was founded. And you have three references to capital punishments in the Constitution. This is all constitutional make-believe, as far as I can tell. Uh, But, you know, there are people much cleverer than I who can make arguments that go the other way. And, indeed, the entire field of constitutional interpretation has been absolutely ruined uh, because it is now pressed in the service of protecting the uh, progressive synthesis So. Commerce means everything. Property means nothing. Cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, you don't integrate it with the rest of the text and so forth. Uh, that's modern American constitutional law, and I'm strongly against it as a general matter, and I certainly would fight any effort to extend federal power to shrink property rights under the current situation, uh, but I do think that this reality is that we have to face and so forth, and I mean, we are not back in 1787 and the damage or the transformation, depending on how you look at it, has been very substantial, and they're going to have to grapple with this because certainly that argument is going to be made front and center by any one of the hundred amicus briefs that are going to appear on both sides of this case. Speaking of legal make-believe, there's another set of issues that we should probably do, at least in passing. So our producer, Scott Emmergut, suggested it would be good to talk both about the increasing scrutiny around the idea that COVID may have leaked out of a laboratory in China and the issue we had a couple of days ago with the government of Belarus forcing down a passenger jet so that they could arrest an opposition journalist on board. And Scott wanted your legal analysis on what remedies 
were available under international law for other countries against China or Belarus in these cases. My response was that international law is a consensual fiction, but I'm sure it's more complicated than that. John, why don't you start us off here? I just thought part of this was because uh, Scott wants to fly to Minsk and get COVID. (laughs) I don't even know what that means. (laughs) Which would be about par for his usual vacations out. And where does he live? Lodi? I can't remember. (laughs) It's very different. Lodi. Ojai. I don't remember which town it is. So uh, I I actually, this is stuff I, uh, you know, work on. I'd say that um, it's interesting. They're they're, they're different. Uh, The answers to each one are different. Um, there's actually international law about uh, airspace and the treatment of civilian civilian flights. Um, there's something called the Chicago Convention, which is interesting because it was done in 1944 in the middle of World War II. Um, but it's still the foundational agreement between nation states about how to regulate civilian air transport. And basically it has two principles. One is that uh, every country is in charge of its own airspace. So if this Ryanair flight was over Belarus, as it was, um, still the nation of Belarus has sovereignty, not just over the land, but over the air above it. But the treaty also has a second provision, which is that you are not supposed to use force against civilian airliners in general, (laughs) except that certain exceptions like self-defense. And then in 1970, 71, there's something called the Montreal Convention, which was passed specifically to deal with hijacking which said it's a violation of international law, you know, to force down an airliner, uh, basically, or to even give it misleading information to cause it to land. Um, but the main point is, uh, is enforcement. And this is where your, Troy, your instincts were, I think are correct, which is in the field of the, in this area, like in a lot of areas, international law, you can't go to any court really and sue. Uh, the only way to uh, enforce international law here is for other nation states to retaliate against Belarus, which is to say, uh, shut down. You can't go onto Belarus's airspace and shut it down because under the treaties, Belarus owns its own airspace. But what you can do is say no flights will go in and out of Belarus. You could cut Belarus off from the rest of the world. You could sanction its airline. You could you, know, you could uh, ban it from flying anywhere. You could uh, ban your own airlines from flying into the country. You could really uh, impose serious financial costs on Belarus as a deterrent from people doing this again. But there's no lawsuits uh, under any. In fact, these treaty the treaties about uh, airspace are pretty careful in that they don't create a dispute resolution system for resolving something. Uh, like this. So with COVID, the COVID one, I've, I'm kind of curious what Richard thinks, because to me, what happened with COVID, assuming uh, it actually doesn't matter whether it was intentional or not, or not, but assuming that COVID started in Wuhan, that it's some either intentional or an unintentional uh, release of the virus from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, as more and more uh, intelligence seems to come out of our government about this. What do you do? There's no international law about it. But if this were a tort in the common law, I would think Richard would say you must force the polluter here, China, to internalize all the costs that it has thrust on the rest of the world due to its negligent conduct, which was here operating with bat viruses in an unsafe way. And because that's the only way to get it 
to take the necessary precautions in the future. So the United States and other countries that have suffered a lot from this, uh, if this were a tort law, should go about seizing Chinese property in compensation for all the costs it has imposed on the world, which to me would, you know, one idea I had was, why doesn't the United States just sort of cancel all the treasury bill holdings that China has, which I think is, you know, close to a trillion, maybe it's a few hundred billion dollars as a, as a down payment for all the costs it's inflicted on the rest of the world. All not because we want to punish them in a criminal law way, but because we want them to understand that their negligence and their failures to take precautions imposed trillions of dollars of costs and millions of deaths on the rest of the world. John, you're such an optimist. Uh, let me try. <laughs> <laughs> really? I'm the optimist? Uh, no. It, it, look, I mean, you know, uh, this is the sort of opposite kind of problem that we have with overruling a Supreme Court precedent. Uh, far from worrying about the internal uh, niceties of doctrine and reliance, uh, you have this usual problem that under international law, we have a strong customary system, which is surprisingly durable over a very broad range of cases. Uh, but if it turns out that a nation has a strong particularistic incentive to deviate from the cooperative solution, it will do so and the rest of the world is left kind of holding its back. And so the first thing we have to note is that uh, in the Belarus situation, innocence and guilt is simply not to be a problem. This guy decided to see somebody flying over his territory with the purpose of doing it. Uh, all the pretense of a bomb being on board was, is just a farce. The guy is crooked from the beginning to end. Uh, what kind of sanctions you impose the difficulty with the sanctions that John wants to impose is they impose greater costs in some way upon other nations than it does on Belarus. Um, it turns out it's you know a crossroads over which many planes start to fly, and if you have to circumvent it, it's going to change all sorts of things in the international space one way or another. And so people may sound very brave, but God knows whether they're willing to do this. They may seek further assurances and so forth. Uh, the one thing you could do, of course, is in Instead of just boycott, you could bomb. Uh, this is generally regarded as very unfashionable with respect to international law. And in this particular kind of case, if you did it, it's not sure what good it will do. I think one of the things that people should do is to clamor for the release of this particular guy. And uh, amongst the other sanctions that I would impose is I would uh, basically throw them out of every voluntary organization that you could shake a stick at, including membership in the United Nations, until they did that, uh, because the inability to use force creates these gaps. With respect to China, the evidence, of course, is not conclusive, but I will give you my priors. Anything the Chinese say is a lie. I mean, this has basically become, I think, a standard operating policy, whether you're talking about its oppression of minorities, its aggression in the South China Sea, its designs on uh, Taiwan, it, its entire structure. Uh, it cannot give a straight report of any kind of issue. It has become, as far as I'm concerned, a derelict government, uh, which happens to have the second largest economy on the face of the globe. So um, I think it's what John says is clearly right. Uh, but then you're going to say, well, what about the proof. And, you know, this stuff is extremely difficult to do. So to give you the tort law lesson, John, um, uh, there are almost no tort cases whatsoever uh, in which individuals can sue any other individuals for getting any kind of virus, flu, or so forth. The protean chains of causation are so difficult uh, that you don't see this. So uh, you are right to call this a public nuisance, which I think is what it is, uh, with massive implications for other people. Uh, and the only remedy that you have for public nuisance is of that sort is a form of 
indirect regulation, which doesn't work unless you have sovereign power over the sources of the emission. So you're going to have to go through some other kind of international procedures in order to do this. Uh, the problem of seizing Chinese assets wherever they be found is that China will, in retaliation, seize assets that the other nations have in China or elsewhere around the world if they could get their hand upon it. And they will then claim the high ground of saying they have been tried and convicted uh, without due process of law, no chance to give a hearing or anything else. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm just completely pessimistic about this. But if you ask me on the factual basis, I think the Wuhan laboratory story is, I think, much more plausible than some wild food market that's going on there. We know that they were doing this kind of research. We know that Mr. Uh, Fauci, to be charitable, sort of downplayed what went on there and the cooperation with American labs and University of North Carolina and so forth. Uh, so I think that uh, the fingerprints move much more directly in that direction than they do anywhere else. And I don't like conspiracy theories against reputable nations, but China, in my mind, is not a reputable nation. And so I think a conspiracy approach to them is probably an accurate description of the way in which they have behaved. Uh, under the recent regime, they've become more lawless than they've ever been before. Everybody in the world starts to know that. Uh, but how you start to deal somebody, its immorality and its power is a challenge for the particular age. I can't think of a more spineless administration to lead the charge than the Biden administration, which I regard, maybe John will correct me on this, as a collection of hopeless naives when it comes to dealing with any question of foreign affairs. They're not willing to use force in any particular case. They seem to have no moral vision. They coddle to our energies and attack our friend. Uh, so if we're going to try to mount this, uh, I would not want to be behind Mr. Joe Biden as leader and his rather hapless uh, Secretary of State uh, Anthony Blinken. But am I wrong about this, John, or not? No, I mean, I, I the way I would put it is the only way you get anyone to follow uh, international rules is through strong nation states that are willing to enforce them. And so you're quite right. If uh, Biden and his uh, people seem to think, oh, nations will just follow these things, we don't have to really do anything to force them to or to impose costs when they get out of line, then you're going to see, and, and I think there's no mistake, you're sorry, seeing a, a rise of things like not just in Belarus, but you have the violence in Gaza. I'm sure China is going to, you know, China has been upping its uh, air incursions over Taiwan. I think you're going to see a lot of these countries like Russia and China, Iran, and North Korea step up their challenges because they can see uh, so far, at any rate, an administration that's not uh, willing to you know, use its power to defend the system, which has done so well for the world since 1945. Well, I mean, yes, and they're hapless with respect to Afghanistan. That place is starting to fall like dominoes. Um, I mean, there's no realism. Uh, one of the things that libertarians have to understand is that the use of force is the biggest international no-no. But if somebody else is aggressive, you have to be able to figure it out and then start to use force in response. And I think that this administration is so spineless that any of the kinds of things that you're talking about are not likely to be done. I mean, one of the criticisms, ironically, of Donald Trump is that he was probably, for the most part, a slightly too 
dovish rather than hawkish in his administration. And Biden has taken it one level further. I mean, I think that their foreign policy team, along with virtually every other team that they have, is completely inept and that the lack of leadership coming out of the United States is really enormous. And what's happened is if we don't want to lead, there's going to be nobody else who's big enough or strong enough to take our place. And since we're not leading, they'll not be following. And I think that Wuhan, Belarus, and lots of other things that you're going to start to see are going to take over. And indeed, I think progressives in the United States are pretty much in favor of this kind of unilateral surrender in economic affairs and in military affairs overseas. So I think we're in for a very grim four years. Well, speaking of unstable states, we should talk about Florida. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I actually really like Florida. I'm just kidding. Uh, but I, do, I do want to turn you guys to state law for a moment. It's been really interesting to watch this play out. So Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, is a guy who it seems pretty clear, probably has presidential ambitions, and is very savvy about always uh, finding an angle, finding an action item for whatever the issue du jour is. So DeSantis recently signed into law a bill that came out of the Florida legislature, does the following. It imposes fines of $25,000 a day for social media companies that ban candidates for local office, $250,000 a day for social media companies that ban candidates for statewide office. It also makes it easier for private citizens to bring suits if they think these companies are being inconsistent in their moderation policies. John, the most frequent criticism of this bill is that this is purely performative, that this is DeSantis playing to its base, but that it has absolutely no shot once it ends up in the courts. Is that how you see it? No, not at all. Actually, I think it raises the issues we were talking about before with uh, Justice Thomas's uh, dissent on the Twitter case. You know, but if you recall, uh, Twitter kicked off Donald, I'm sorry, Donald Trump kicked people off following him when he was president off of Twitter. I, I don't use it, so I don't know how you do this. I think Richard knows because he's the uh, computer whiz here. Oh, and He's yeah. on Twitter. And Richard's on Twitter, I, oh, I believe. I'm actually I'm on. I'm on in silence. I, 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 <laughs> oh, really? You're not using it anymore? I oh. mean, I, I, yeah. it's just a I don't use people Twitter. to pose abuse upon you without having any real <laughs> yeah, you well, you're, you're, you're an efficiency guy, Richard. They're going to heap abuse on you anyway. You just want to make it less costly for them. Stop shopping. <laughs> so anyway, so um, if you remember Justice Thomas, Thomas uh, said, look, conservatives generally think that uh, these networks are private property. And if they are private property, then I I think the Sanctus is uh, the statute is going to be held unconstitutional because why does Florida have the right to force a private network to take people on it that it doesn't want? Right. That's it's just like saying I have to let people camp out on my front yard. Uh, but if Thomas is right, that what the laws should do is treat Facebook and YouTube and all as common carriers. Bingo. Yeah. Right, you know, Richard's favorite. <laughs> Richard's favorite. Category. I'm not sure I agree with them, but neither. Am I. You know, but if they're common carriers, then there's more of an obligation right on the part of these networks not to discriminate and who they allow mm. to essentially get on their train or stay at their hotel. Uh, and then distinct as this bill might have a choice of chance. So actually the bill is like, I, I don't know if this is why, why they did it, but it is a clever way of sparking a court challenge, which may ultimately force the Supreme Court to take this issue up and decide it. In dealing with this problem, I have a slightly different attitude. I think the first 
question you're going to have to face is whether this runs afoul of the Dormant Commerce Clause. Uh, that is, all the broadcasts that one starts to see in the state of Florida uh, may originate there, uh, may be targeted to Florida citizens, uh, but they're certainly going to be heard in other states. Uh, many of them are going to be rebroadcast elsewhere. And the question is whether or not one state can impose these kinds of sanctions upon conduct which now operates in a national market. And so what you then do is you start to see some other state coming in uh, with a various kinds of situations, saying, in effect, the uh, decency and political um, life speech, which says that anybody who wants to publish salacious conversation by irresponsible uh, politicians, read Donald Trump and his kindred, they are going to be subject to serious sanctions by our state. Uh, because remember, we have people who think it's terrible to ban all of this stuff, and there's people who think that it's always disinformation to allow this kind of stuff taking place. And I think, in effect, the clash between those two forces is going to lead a lot of courts to believe that uh, you can't do this at the state level. You have to do it at the national level. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really kind of troubled by all of this. As, as in terms of what's going on, I do have one thing, and I've thought about this a lot on the, well, what do we do with common carriers? The uh, actual debate on this seems to boil down to one very important uh, empirical question. You take somebody like Facebook um, and so forth with a very dominant kind of position. Uh, if you look at the current numbers, uh, they sort of look like monopoly numbers. Uh, if you look at future numbers, we don't know where they're going to be. And so people like Josh Wright, very smart economist, says, you know, new entry is going to solve this problem. Uh, but it hasn't solved the problem yet. And so the Epstein kind of version is as follows. So long as you keep the kind of dominant market share that you have, that does make you into a common carrier. But if free entry starts to take place and to erode that dominance, then we will switch to the pure competitive model. Uh, I think the danger, given the uncertainty of future past, is to say that we have to make a once-and-for-all determination about the status of these various entities. Um, and so then at the federal level, you can see it. But as you know, John, uh, this thing has gone absolutely crazy. Uh, Amazon is also now being attacked for high prices, even though uh, you take somebody like Lena Khan, a most unfortunate appointment, I think, to the FTC. Uh, their danger is it's not that high prices are so terrible, it's low prices that are so terrible. Um, and so you get this constant situation that any movement in the market on prices is always an antitrust violation of some sort. I'll just end on this note. Ronald Coase used to have this version of it. He says, oh, he said in his finest British accent, <laughs> you raise prices and well, it's obviously cartelization and price fixing, and you lower prices, it's clearly predation. And if you keep them the same, it's market stabilization. Uh, so no matter what you do, you're always in violation of the antitrust laws. I mean, there is that kind of thing looming over the back of this, and we have to think about this very, very hard. I think the general left attitude on these issues is to find too many antitrust violations in too many places where competition is working. But that's a discussion for another day. You know, one of the reasons I think the show has endured for so long is that we're filling this hole in the market for Ronald Coase impersonations. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm trying, Ronald, was, Ronald was a truly great mind um, and, and a very close friend. And, you know, these aphorisms, the reason they last so long is that they summarize um, very important kinds of... Half the secret to being a good public intellectual. Having good aphorisms. What's the other half? Uh, having good ideas. Oh, I was going to say heavy alcohol use, but yeah, good yeah, ideas. I was, was going to say, I didn't think it was the good ideas part. 
<laughs> well, I do. I mean, I, I do think that people like Ronald, what happens is they don't get spectacular influence at any one given time, uh, but they have durability, whereas people who tend to have frantic peaks often have huge valleys and then disappear. The reason why Ronald lasts is it turns out there's never been a second coast-like theorem um, in the 60-odd years since he published The Problem of Social Cause. Uh, Ronald's position about the world in one sentence is in order to increase social welfare, lower transactions cost. That's a lot better than the Keynesian position, which says, oh, whenever you don't know what to do, pump money into the economy. Let me, speaking of pumping money into things, let me get you guys to one last thing before we go. Um, the next time that we talk, we're probably going to have results from a bunch of Supreme Court cases. We'll talk about some of them then. But I want you to get uh, to this one before we find out the ruling. This antitrust case that the court is going to weigh in on soon in regards to the NCAA compensating college athletes. Just a reminder of where this is at. The Ninth Circuit ruled that the NCAA was being too restrictive. It said they can't restrict compensation that's related to education. They, They can for stuff that's not directly related. And the NCAA's argument here is, you know, look, we're an amateur organization. Our audience likes this stuff precisely because it's not professional sports. If we start paying people, we ruin that. And the athlete's argument is, well, your little amateur endeavor mints money, billions of dollars worth, and we play for these lavishly paid coaches and work out in these lavishly appointed facilities. Everyone seems to be getting a cut of this uh, except for us. John, which side of this argument do you come down on? I'm I'm no antitrust guy, but... I mean, if you just apply the standard principles of antitrust, I don't see why colleges and universities get to set up a group where all the members of the group who control college athletics in this country get to decide that none of them will pay student athletes anything, and they can kick each other out of this group, the NCAA, if any of them does it. <laughs> Gosh, it's so imagine. I mean, that just seems like an outright antitrust violation to me. I mean, suppose, um, you know, all the law schools got together and they just said, well, we're going to put a cap on how much you can pay law professors, uh, which would be this would be a crime, a crime. But suppose this were to happen. <laughs> um, wouldn't that be an obvious antitrust violation? I don't I really don't see the I can see the policy reasons why universities don't want to pay. Right. They want to preserve preserve amateur athletics. Although, I, you know, from what I've seen, I'm sure the uh, University of Alabama football team could beat the Jets, New York Jets on any given day. Low bar. But anyway, you know, they, they, they make these claims about amateur athletics and um, making sure they're student athletes first and so on. But whatever the policy reasons are, it still seems to me to run smack into the antitrust laws. I don't see how they get out of it. All right. Well, let me see if I can give an explanation. Let's start with the professional leagues. Uh, And this was argued by Ralph Winter, the wonderful judge who recently died. He says what really goes on in professional sports is that the uh, antitrust statutes are preempted by the labor law. And under labor law, monopolization is de rigueur. And what you do is you have collective bargaining. And so what happens is you bargain to impasse, and then to get to the antitrust laws, you dissolve the union, and then all of a sudden it's a naked cartel in the form that John described. They reach an agreement, and then they go right back and put the union structure in place because they can't live without it. And, And the reason they go through these hijinks is that unlike the law school example, Berkeley will do just well if Yale gets weaker than it already is and vice versa um, and so forth. But when you have a league 
Uh, the last thing you want is to have dominance. What you need to have is uncertainty. And the ideal league, in some sense, says that every team has a 50% chance of winning every game, uh, so as to maximize the excitement with respect to the stuff. And so, therefore, you no, have no, no, to no, that's totally wrong. In a well-functioning league, the always have talent winning win every, every game time. unless they unless they're, <laughs> unless they're playing the Eagles. Right? Exactly. <laughs> Um, we you forgot that. the Philadelphia Eagles exception. Yes, I, that, I mean, that's right. And, you know, the New York <laughs> football giants, I mean, you know, go back 1957, Sam Huff and uh, Boy, you guys, Jimmy are, the Eagles and the Giants, you guys are going to be waiting a long time. time. I, I know that, but I'm not waiting. So the, the question of competitive balance has always been there. These are not monopolistic institutions in the sense they're not trying to maximize profits coming out of it. And indeed, one of the things about any charitable institution is it has to live on a very complicated system of of cross-subsidies. And so if the industrial structure is not that of a standard profit-making firm, it's not at all clear that the antitrust law should apply as if it were. And indeed, one of the things that happens, if you look at the decree down below, it wasn't as though the judge said, oh, there's absolutely nothing you can do. This is an entire antitrust violation. She says there's some restrictions that you can impose and there are other restrictions that you can't impose. If this is a true antitrust case, you don't have that degree of selectivity. Any kind of restriction that you impose under these circumstances is going to be suspect. And and so I think what happens is it's a very, very difficult kind of case to come to. Uh, My attitude is somewhat different. I think in general, if you see an institution that has survived and prospered for a very long period of time, uh, you don't want to throw the antitrust wrench into it for fear that you might make some very dangerous kind of mistake. And in fact, one of the things that you said, Troy, in the way in which you posed the problem is, oh my God, you said, this is something that these guys, they have these fancy coaches, they have accommodations, the likes of which you have never seen, right? Well, what's happening is uh, that's a form of in-kind compensation that's given to these players uh, precisely because they do get more than the ordinary college student under these things in addition to tuition. Uh, they also get a lot of publicity, which allows them later on after they graduate to earn money and so forth. Uh, so I think, in effect, that if you're trying to figure out what the total impact of the package is, you have to figure out what the follow-on gains are to the players in terms of brand success, being drafted into the pros and so forth. And, and many people, if you start looking at this market, uh, most college athletes don't go on to the pros, uh, but the effort to get into varsity programs at various places in minor sports like soccer and so forth is ferocious. Um, and why is that? Because the experience itself is well worth it. So it's win-win-win all around. That is never a conclusive answer to the antitrust law. Uh, but normally it's because you're worried about new entrants coming in. But in this situation, the entrant requirement, it doesn't have the same way that it does with isolated firms coming in. So uh, my inclination would be uh, to let this particular thing ride uh, rather than to do it and then to try to seek some kind of a legislative compromise, uh, which might be able to fine-tune the wages and compensation situation. Uh, But I don't think the Supreme Court or indeed any court knows enough about the ins and outs of how these organizations work uh, to make an emphatic statement uh, that what we have to do is to redo the things. Uh, appellate judges are not experts in this kind of situation. I like to claim some expertise in antitrust because I've worked in it my entire professional career, and my expertise consists of saying, I'm really not sure what's going on here, uh, which a non-expert could say with equal confidence.
which would not necessarily stop the Supreme Court from coming down the other way. So that'll be my final question for you guys. What if you had to predict, how do you think the court will actually deal with this case? Um, I think they're going to remand for further information. Uh, I think they're going to require, I'm not sorry, not require. I think they're going to strike down the NCAA's ban on salaries for I mean, salaries and benefits for athletes. Uh, too broad, too broad. Anyhow, right, John, it's always nice talking to you, guy. <laughs> that is going to have to do it. Thanks, as always, to the two of you, to our producer, Scott Emmerich, and to all our wonderful listeners. Remember to do us a favor and rank the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the Faculty Lounge is officially closed. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.